Well, uh, beautiful day, wasn't it, yesterday? My goodness, makes you glad to live in Lubbock, Texas and forget those days that are brown and dusty. Um, I was talking with uh, friends this morning and uh, just recognizing the fact, I don't know what it is about the spring, but it just seems like everything shifts into about Mach 1 speed. Anybody else feeling that right about now? Okay, well, here's what we're going to do. Everybody take a deep breath. All right, we're going to slow down, and we're going to take some time to listen to what God has in store. We're not going to let the pace of life distract us from what's most important in life. So let's just commit ourselves to to doing that together. I want to tell you just a little thing as I thought about our passage this morning. One of my favorite things uh, as a kid, and even now today when we play board games like Cranium, are those really highly magnified zoomed-in pictures. You know what I'm talking about? where you have to guess what the object is from this highly magnified view. And so a tennis ball, for example, may look like this grassy field where the seam looks like this winding road. Or you could have a, a stick pin when it's highly magnified. It looks like a 16-penny nail, right? It, it's really difficult to tell in some of those cases what these things are when you're looking at them that close. But if you pull back the lens just a little bit, it becomes, oh, well, that's obvious. That's clear what that is. But when up close, it's difficult to see sometimes. Well, in a similar way, we've been examining a highly magnified view of the life and character of Joseph. But pull back the lens just a little bit, and we begin to see that this story is really more about the sovereign control of God than it is about the life and character of Joseph. It's important, but it's not the most important thing. As we mentioned last week, the world has a problem, right? That problem is sin, a disease introduced into the bloodstream of every man, woman, boy and girl, born under the judgment of the curse that was started in the Garden of Eden. That's where Romans 5.12 comes from. When it says, therefore, just as through one man, speaking of Adam... Sin entered into the world, and death through sin. Death then spread to all men. Why? Because all have sinned. That's the problem. But in that same garden, we also learn that God made a promise to Eve that would be the answer to that problem of sin, where it would be eventually found, as he tells her, in her seed. An individual born of a woman would conquer Satan's dominion and ultimately defeat the power of sin. And over time, we are giving a progressively clear view of what that looks like. It's almost like the the lens is being pulled out and more and more details are being able to be seen until eventually we see the face of Jesus Christ, the answer promised to Eve. This morning, we are going to take a look at the life of Joseph and In our progression of the story, we see that we've learned by this time that the answer to the problem would come through the seed of a woman born out of the lineage of Abraham through the tribe of Judah, which as it relates to our study happens to be the brother of Joseph. Okay? So the relevance of what we looked at, even especially last week, where everything kind of hinges on what Joseph spoke to to Pharaoh when he told him that a famine is coming. 
a famine so great that it will ravage the land and the people will perish unless we listen to God and wisely prepare. Included in those people who would in fact perish is the tribe of Judah from whom the promise of the answer to the problem of sin would be found. Joseph was the man that God raised up to protect that promise of salvation. In Joseph's story, he's been a roller coaster. We've been on this ride a little bit already, enough to see that he goes from favored son to hated brother, from being thrown into a pit to elevated as a, a, a chief over the house of, the, of Potiphar, to then wrongly imprisoned in a dungeon, to, as we'll see this morning, elevated to a place of authority second only to Pharaoh himself. And all the while, Joseph is learning, and I pray with all my heart that we are as well, that God is the one orchestrating all these events in a way that carries out his redemptive plan. To the point that Joseph, as we saw last week, even admitted to Pharaoh when he was speaking to him about his dream, he said, it's not in me. Remember that? It's not in me. God has the answer that will give you peace. Listen to him. Why? Because he's ultimately the one who is in control. And not just control for control's sake. Please understand that. The sovereignty of God is at work in controlling the events in a manner that is consistent with the fulfillment of his redemptive plan. It is his great love that is motivating every step he takes to that completion. The question I think that we need to ask and answer as we consider the sovereignty of God is what is man's responsibility in the midst of God's sovereign control? That's an important question. And I believe our passage this morning helps answer that question. And we're going to look at that together. Let me pray for us and then I'm going to ask Tracy Patterson to to read our passage this morning. God, I do come to you and pray that uh, you will open our eyes to see. And uh, I know oftentimes we get stuck where we, we look at the sovereignty of God and we think, well, what does it matter what I do? And, and then we become passive and really don't recognize the responsibility that you've given us in the midst of that. But on the other hand, sometimes we forget about your sovereign control and we take control. And, and we assume way too much responsibility in the midst of your hand of control. And so this morning, Father, I pray for each one of us, myself included, that we will understand that balance between your control and our responsibility and just a picture of what that looks like to the life and character of Joseph. That's our prayer, Father, and we ask it in your name. Amen. Genesis 41, 37-57. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all of this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand 
and put it on Joseph's hand. And clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphonath Pani and gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. So as we see in our passage, Joseph literally goes from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs, doesn't he? From the dungeon to the place of authority, second only to Pharaoh himself. His life demonstrates that promise that we talked about, that Peter spoke of in 1 Peter when he says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in a proper time. Remember? Apparently, in the life of Joseph, this is the proper time. And so as we look at our passage this morning, I want to encourage you to pay particular attention to what Joseph does even in the midst of God's sovereign control. I want you to notice that he didn't assume this passive attitude of, oh well, whatever will be, will be. God's in control, so it really doesn't matter what I do. We already saw from what was read that he took some responsibility, didn't he? He took some action. He did some things in response to what God had done in his life. In fact, I believe that it was Joseph's awareness of God's divine sovereign control that actually heightened his conviction to take responsibility for what he knew he would be doing to prepare good works ahead of time that he may walk in them. Because did you notice as... Uh, as was read, the the pomp and circumstance that took place with his promotion. Joseph stood before before Pharaoh, along with all the servants. He interpreted the dream, gave the recommendation to that dream, and Pharaoh said, essentially, I like that plan. (laughs) I think you're the man for that plan. It appears that you have a divine spirit. You follow that and will follow you. Now, then he takes off his signet ring. That's significant because when Pharaoh takes off the signet ring, he is essentially giving Joseph all the decision-making power over the entire land of Egypt. Joseph would have been called what was called then the royal seal bearer because the seal of that ring would give Joseph the authority to take every request and make it law. So Joseph was no longer making recommendations. He was creating law. The Pharaoh then clothed Joseph in garments and in jewelry. 
that would visually reflect his new status. Probably not unlike if you took a civilian and put a general's uniform on him and then marched that person into an army base, right? Whether they knew this person or not, when they saw that uniform, what are they going to do? Stand and salute. Well, the same thing happens with Joseph. They, he clothes him in these Egyptian garments of authority and this jewelry to reflect his position. And what happens? He goes into the city. They take a knee and bow before Joseph. Pharaoh gives him the, the uniform and, and the chariot to reflect his new position. And just to make sure that no one is tempted to demean uh, Joseph because of this Hebrew heritage, which we've already seen has happened a couple of times, hasn't it? What he does next is important because he gives Joseph an Egyptian name. He gives him an Egyptian wife so that his rule among the Egyptian people is unquestioned. Now, what I want you to stop for just a moment and consider right here is that if Joseph does not view his life in the context of of God's sovereign control, he's feeling pretty good about himself right now, isn't he? Life is looking pretty good. In fact, he might even consider how to to leverage this newfound prestige for an even greater gain. Because if this is all about Joseph, it's time to start working the angles to make sure you can reap the most benefit from this unexpected situation. See, if Joseph loses his perspective of God's sovereign control, he starts living for himself. God fades into the background, and Joseph begins to take the lead. But that's not what happened, is it? He has a a different attitude, and I believe this attitude is different because he understands God's sovereign control. He appreciates the fact that the only reason that he has been given this opportunity is because God has ultimately directed it by his sovereign hand. It's not his job to make a name for himself. Joseph understands that it's his responsibility to live his life in a manner that glorifies God who put him in that place to begin with. He's simply walking in the good works that God has prepared beforehand. And he can't take credit for any of them. And I think that's exactly what he does. If you would, look at verse 46 again with me. It said, Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven years of plenty uh, in the land, he, it brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food in all the seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from their own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. It goes on to say, Now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, one of whom Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore him. And Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He named the second one Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. When the seven years of plenty, which he had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, 
just as Joseph had said. Then there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe in the land. And the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was so severe among the earth. So we talked about last time that Joseph, it's been, what, 13 years since Joseph was thrown into the pit by his brothers. During this time, we could safely say that Joseph has been to the the school of hard knocks, right? But God has been a faithful teacher. In whatever way he chose to reveal his plans, they always came to pass. These lessons in life have helped Joseph, as Paul might have said, to live in times of humble means and times of plenty. When he was filled and when he was hungry, when he was abundance and when he suffered need. But through it all, Joseph has learned that God is his portion. And it all seems to be preparing him for this moment. The text tells us that one of Joseph's early decisions was to go about all the land of Egypt and survey the land. So why did he do that? Well, think about it. He grew up 300 miles to the east. He hasn't seen the land of Egypt because ever since he got there, he was either as a slave in a house of Potiphar or in a prison dungeon. He doesn't know what the land of Egypt looks like. So it only makes sense that if he's going to be responsible to feed this land, he goes out and looks to see the scope of this responsibility. Well, I think that's significant. In an effort to help us capture the perspective of the scope of this responsibility, I want to give you an illustration that would be relevant to our own culture here as we deal with an industry that we have some familiarity with, and that's cotton. Okay? I asked Doug Kennedy, who works for a, a company here in town who produces cottonseed oil from, from cottonseed, and I asked him the question. I said, okay, let's put you in Joseph's position. What if you were told one day, hey, listen, there's going to be seven years of abundance followed by a seven-year drought. And it's real important that during those seven years you prepare for that drought. How are you going to do it? <laughs> I was a little perplexed at first, but he kind of went down, did a little math, talked to some of his colleagues at the work, and he said, you know, well, in a good year, what we would consider a year of abundance, we would produce enough cottonseed to fill, about, uh, to, to fill the United Spirit Arena about four and a half times. Okay, so that would be a good year of abundance. He then said, so if we're going to have a seven-year drought where we've got to use that abundance of those first seven years, he said, we would need to store enough, get this, to fill the United Spirit Arena 21 times. 21 times. That's how much seed would need to be stored away in order to serve enough capacity for those seven years of drought. And not only would they, it's, so it's kind of double work, isn't it? They've got to produce the seed every year, but then they've got to store some seed and create the storehouses in which to do that. There's also got to be a rationing system to determine how much seed they're actually going to store away. And they can't just let it sit there for seven years because it'll spoil. It'll ruin. 
So they've got to have some type of distribution system so that they're always using old seed and storing new seed and it's rotating. Okay? You get a picture of this? Now take that and extrapolate it for the entire nation of Egypt and you understand what Joseph was tasked to do. He had to make these same calculations. He had to ration out grain accordingly. He had to build these storehouses and probably create some system of distribution so that this didn't spoil. Because here's the difference here. What Joseph was doing was storing what would be their food. They were going to live off of the supply of grain that was being put away. It would be their sustenance for seven years. And yet, despite all this effort, As it turns out, the abundance God provided was even greater than anyone expected. And there's a reason for that, which he doesn't understand right now and will become crystal clear in the end. But but all we know is that he was faithful, that he did the right thing to prepare as best he could for what was ahead. God did not give him all the details to the point that as they continued to store away, they stopped counting. It became clear that they were going to have enough as they continued to put food away. So one of the things that I want you to notice here as we think through the significance of this is that God's provision was not dependent upon Joseph's skill and ability. Now, he was a good steward. He took responsibility. But I promise you, God was not up in heaven with his fingers crossed thinking, I hope he gets those calculations right or these people aren't going to get fed. That's not what happened. All he needed, all God needed was a faithful man who would do his best to steward the responsibility given to him and then God would take care of the rest. God's sovereignty is not dependent on our ability. All he needs is faithfulness. That's what it looks like to be a steward in the midst of the sovereignty of God's control. Because once again, it's not all about Joseph. Because if it was, he's seeing dollar signs, right? Because he knows that the famine's coming and that people are going to be coming to who? Joseph. To get this. And they're going to be paying who? Joseph. To get that grain that they need for food. And if you're starving, you're going to pay whatever price he puts on it. You don't have a choice. He controls it all. So if this is all about Joseph, he's seeing dollar signs. And he's going to maximize the benefit. And even to the point that if he sees an abundance, he might ration more. Because what does that mean? More money for me. Maybe he should use God's blessing for his personal gain because, after all, isn't the goal to make sure Joseph is happy and prosperous? Not at all. Wasn't then, isn't now. These events are, ha- are not happening to, to secure Joseph's personal prosperity. They were happening to preserve God's promise of salvation. Joseph may not have understood all the details, But I assure you, he was faithful. And he understood enough to know that what was happening was much bigger than himself. And this, I believe, is what motivated him to handle the responsibility well. 
And as we learn, Joseph not only experienced the abundance of the harvest in the field, the scripture tells us that he had a harvest of his own in his family, right? Had two sons that were born to him during this time of abundance, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, keep in mind that that Pharaoh did everything he could to make Joseph Egyptian, right? Gave him an Egyptian name, gave him an Egyptian wife, put him in a place of Egyptian authority. How easy it would have been for for Joseph and his new family to adopt all these attributes and live within this Egyptian culture. And if Joseph is a passive father, as was his father, that's exactly what happens. But that's not what we see, is it? Joseph and his family lived in the world of Egyptians, but they preserved the Hebrew heritage and faith of their forefathers. The names Joseph gave his sons were Hebrew names that reflected the character and attributes of the sovereignty of the one true God. Joseph and his family lived in the world of Egyptians, but they preserved their heritage and faith of followers of God. See, Joseph is accepting responsibility to raise up that next generation so that they may serve God faithfully in the midst of his sovereign control. The first son's name was Manasseh, which is a name derived from a Hebrew word that literally means to forget. And Joseph explains the meaning of that name when he says that that is a reminder of how God made him forget all his trouble and all his father's household. Now, As we read this explanation, I personally do not see that it is reasonable to assume that that Joseph is somehow suggesting that he's naming his child in a way that helps him forget about his family because he doesn't care about him anymore. We know that's not true because of what will happen next in the verses that we'll look at yet future. He cares deeply about his family. And so when I look at that name and I understand it within the context of what we know has and will happen, I believe it is more of a statement of forgiveness. Joseph is unwilling to carry the burden of his affliction caused by his family because of his focus of a future hope which he knows will be true. He's forgetting the pain in view of God's promise of redemption. Because I think, and I I believe strongly about this, that, that Joseph still believes that the dream he had and spoke of originally is yet to come true. Because think about what's happened since that time. He's had others that have come true, right? The baker, the cupbearer, now the pharaoh. It's all happening. Why wouldn't that happen? I believe he's convinced that it will. He can forgive because God will ultimately make things right. I think he's beginning to understand that what his family intended for harm God is actually going to use for good. He will make that statement later on. I believe right here, he's beginning to understand that truth. In that sense, God is sovereignly in control in a way that allows Joseph's forgiveness. He says, I choose to forget the bitterness because I live in the hope of God's future provision. I think the idea is validated from the name he gives his second son, Ephraim. Another name of uh, uh, derived from a Hebrew word that means fruitful. He explains again, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. 
And so the, the names of his two sons really tell the story of where Joseph's heart is before God at this point in time. He chose to forget his affliction in view of God's provision, knowing that the fruitful abundance of his life would be the means by which the dream God gave him would ultimately be fulfilled. That's what they mean. Or to put it another way, Joseph simply named his sons in a way that would remind him and would teach them God is in control. God is in control. Trust in him alone. The reason I believe this is the case is because everything around Joseph would have pushed him in a different direction unless he had this perspective. Joseph has become an important figure in the Egyptian culture. If he doesn't trust in God for both himself and his children's future, he will use that position of power and influence given him to secure their future for future gain. He will not give them Hebrew names. It wouldn't happen because that's a hindrance in an Egyptian culture. He wouldn't instruct them to follow the one true God because that too is not popular in an Egyptian culture. But Joseph is not concerned about popularity. Based on his conviction that God is in control, Joseph assumes the responsibility to teach his sons to be faithful to God and to trust that that God will take care of the rest as he is learning to be true for himself. These boys that he's now named wouldn't be old enough to really understand this until when? Until there's a famine. (laughs) And when that time comes, they would be able to recognize the significance of their names and be reminded God is in control and he will see this through. As we learn at the end of the passage, that day does come. Just as Joseph said it would, because just as God had revealed to him, the famine comes. It begins by saying the famine spread over all the earth. And so the Egyptians came to the storehouses to buy food. But by the end of that chapter, it says that all the earth came to Joseph to buy food. Now we know why the abundance was more than Joseph anticipated. Because God was providing for more than Joseph expected. The scope of this provision went well beyond the land of Egypt to include all the people, ultimately the ones who hold the promise of salvation, the tribe of Judah. This, after all, hear me, is what the story of Joseph is all about, preserving the promise of God's salvation. So before we finish up this morning, I want you to think about what we just considered together and how it might apply to our lives today. And let's do so by holding to the conviction that that God's sovereign control is the same today as it was in the life of Joseph. And here's why. It was mentioned, I think Jared even said it, that God's sovereignty is a part of his character. It's who he is. And if that's the case, and I believe it is, then it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it equally applies to us as it does to Joseph. And so the question is, what is our responsibility? What is your responsibility in the midst of God's sovereign control? And I think really the first conviction that we need to have is that we actually have responsibility. That our obedience matters. Otherwise, we don't give any attention to what God might be calling us to do because it's all going to work out anyway. 
God's in control, so what does it matter? Why do I care? You have to care before it matters. And admittedly, there is this tension in Scripture, isn't there, between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. I believe the testimony of Scripture says that the two must coexist. And the picture that I have of this is a a rope that goes over a pulley that's attached to the ceiling. And if you pull on only one side of that rope, it's not going to hold you up. You've got to hold both sides of that rope for it to hold your weight. And the same idea is true in Scripture, where we must believe that God is ultimately in control. That's one side. The other side says, and my obedience matters. You've got to hold both of those sides. It is his perfect plan. But in his infinite wisdom, he has chosen to use fallible people to bring it to completion. Don't ask me how he does it, because I'm not God, but he does it. And isn't it comforting, as we saw in the life of Joseph, to know that the completion of this perfect plan is not dependent upon our individual skills and abilities. In fact, God actually promised in Second Timothy that he would take the responsibility to make sure that we are adequate and equipped for every good work, right? That's what he promised. I will make sure, I, God, will make sure you, Jared, are equipped and adequate for every good work. I'll take that responsibility. Our job is to be faithful, to steward the responsibility given to us by God in a way that brings glory to his name. Be faithful with the small things and let him make them great. Joseph did the part that he thought God wanted him to do. God had so much more in mind. He requires the same from us. Know that God is in control. Know that your obedience matters. And if that's our conviction, I believe we look for ways to participate in his plan. If God is control in control, I, I'm looking for ways to align my actions with what I know to be His will. That's my focus when I see that God is in control. Because if that's not, I only see one other alternative. If that's not my perspective. And that alternative is the, the prideful assumption that I can navigate life just as well on my own. So I'll take it from here and let you know, God, when I need you. I, I don't see another option. I think it's one of the two. It's the understanding that I can either do things my way, in terms of what seems right in my eyes, or I can believe that God's way is best. I turn my attention to following Him, and I walk in the ways that He's prepared beforehand. In a way that, really, my obedience is a response to His loving initiative. This is what becomes, for example, my motivation for being in His Word. God, I want to love my wife in a way that is consistent with Your perfect design, that we experience the fullness of what You intended when You created it. If that's my heart, and I go and I look for that in His Word, I will find it. He's given it. And when I follow it, I will live it. Just as he promised. The same mindset that allows us to wait on the Lord. Because there are those times where things are confusing. There, 
there are people I know and there are conversations that I've had this week that we look ahead to, to what they're facing and I don't know. I don't see a path. I don't see a way out. I don't understand. I think Moses was at a place like that when he stood with the Israelites right on the precipice of entering into the promised land. And, and here he looked behind him and he had all the Israelites that he was responsible for. He looked ahead into this land completely fortified, huge people, well armed. And God says, go into that land. How overwhelming would that have been? Listen to what he says in response to that. He says, God, we are not moving unless we see your presence leading us from this place. That was his perspective. Why did he say that? Because he was so convinced that God's way was best, he refused to chart his own course. He knew that the only way this would work is if God was leading the way. God is in control. My obedience matters. And so I am committed to walking only in the ways that he has prepared beforehand. I look at his word because the way is revealed there. I listen and wait on the Lord as I spend time in prayer. His way is revealed there. I spend time in relationships within the body of Christ because His way is revealed there. God uses these things to give direction to our life. He wants us to walk in the way. And those are the things that He does to show us. When I believe that He's in control and that my obedience matters, that's how I live my life. When I believe that He's in control and my obedience matters, that's how I live my life. You know, if I could boil it all down to just simplify it in closing, it it would be this. My most important responsibility as I live in the midst of God's sovereign control is to learn to trust Him. To learn to trust Him. To believe that His way is best and to follow Him. To be so convinced of this truth that even my highest priority as a parent is to teach my boys, in this case, and you to teach your children that God's way is best, that He is who He says He is, and that we should be committed with all of our heart, mind, and strength to follow Him. And we need to know that there will be times in our life where we will be in the dungeon that the darkness of that imprisoned place will keep us from seeing a way out. We all have those places. But remember, put yourself back in Joseph's shoes when he was there. And look at it from this perspective and realize that when Joseph was there, God wasn't done yet. And realize when you're there, God's not done yet. He is not done yet. No matter what you're in or where you are in life, God is not done yet he's not finished his plan has not come to completion he's still in the process of working that out and our obedience matters in the process so no matter where you are in life there's still a lot of the story yet to be written in fact there's an eternity's worth only when we trust god in the moments where we feel imprisoned by our pain can we experience the freedom of a future deliverance living as joseph did refusing to hold on to the bitterness of things in our past in view of the hope of god what god has yet future 
Once again, our most important responsibility as we learn to live in the midst of God's sovereign control is to what? To trust Him. To trust Him. To believe that His way is best and to follow Him. Because remember, He's not done yet. In the end, I promise you, because He promises you, He will make things right. He will. He will make things right. Trust Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for such a wonderful example and reminder that You are in control and that we can trust You. As we prayed in the beginning, I echo again, please protect us, Father, from looking at Your sovereignty and just charting our own course and saying, ah, it doesn't matter what I do. God doesn't care. You care. You've given us responsibility in small things that You turn into great things. May we be intent then to look at your word, to see your way, to spend time in prayer and to listen for your voice, to interact with one another and invite input into our lives so that we are consistently seeking to follow what is best. And what is best is following you. Father, help us to, to live in a way that glorifies you through the small and through the great, through the dark and through the light, through times of abundance and times of need. May we trust in you. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen.